Goedemorgen, Constance. Goedemorgen, Darian. Hoe gaat het? Dat is goed, met jou. Ja, niet slecht, dankjewel. Why are we speaking Dutch? Why are we speaking Dutch? Yeah. It's our topic for today. Yes. Englishization or internationalization. That's not the same thing. No, not at all. We have to be very careful. And the future of Maastricht University. Right. Or the future of English language instruction within Maastricht University, but also more broadly. I just want to say, which also might translate into the future of the university. Yes, indeed, indeed. We're very lucky. We have two great guests here today, both from the best philosophy department in the world, Massachusetts yes. University Department of Philosophy. Bob Wilkinson and René Gabriel, who have been very active both as researchers, but also as a public speakers on this topic. And they will discuss with us questions of what is language injustice? How does it relate to accessibility of universities? How does it re- relate to the larger context of in, re- in which a university is embedded? And how does it relate to internationalization? I guess it's important to say that we planned this discussion quite a, quite a while ago. In the meantime, there was an election in the Netherlands. That election produced some, I don't know if they were surprising results. I don't know if anyone was, I think many people were are somewhat concerned, but I don't know how many people were that surprised, although perhaps the let's say, margin of victory, if we want to put it that way, for the far-right party, the PVV, was somewhat surprising. And I think the results of this election will inevitably have a big impact on the debate about internationalization, about migration, especially migration in relation to uh, students coming from abroad, but also staff coming from abroad, as well as language policy. So that's something that we hadn't really planned to talk about initially, but I think it's sitting there. It's a kind of the olifant in the room, so to speak. And probably at some point we will come back to we will come back to discuss the election in some more detail. But first, I think we want to just discuss a little bit the work that the two of you have been doing in relation to these topics. Okay, thank you very much, Darren. I'm Bob Wilkinson. I've been working for the university on and off since 1984 and I was heavily involved with the introduction of the first so-called English medium program at the university but in fact it's worth remembering when it started it was a quadrilingual program with Dutch, English, French and German. Later the other languages disappeared and only English was left. I did quite a lot of research on this during the 1990s, but since 2015 I've been involved with René in looking at uh, the impacts of the use of English on students, staff, on the role of society in all of this. And I find it a fascinating journey, which is now about to take a new turn. Linguistic justice, could you explain what do you mean by that? Linguistic justice has many different meanings. Basically, we probably follow the interpretation of Philip Van Parijs, and he sees linguistic justice in three forms. One you can call cooperative justice, which is where two or more groups of people communicate through a single language, and then you can see it as a cost benefit ratio in how much each participant has to invest in order to be able to communicate. And if you're doing everything in English, then those people who have prior investment in English, such as L1 speakers from Britain or America or Australia, they have to invest much less than somebody, say, from the Netherlands or even, say, from Montenegro or anywhere else. The second type you can see as distributive justice. And this is where linguistic justice is seen as a public good, but or at least not so much as a public good, but more where people have to trade off at an individual level. I think René could probably explain this in a little bit more detail, but it relates to what you can call the inequalities of opportunities for people. And so it's looking at opportunities that people have in using language A or language B. Grant and his colleagues in Geneva have done quite a lot of research on the 
economic values in this respect, showing that in Switzerland at least it is economically more valuable to learn French or German, if you don't already speak it, than English. The third type is you can see as parity of esteem. And in this case, you're looking at the collective identity of people, that language is constitutive for collective identity of a group of people. And in this respect, you can say the current debate in the Netherlands relates to mixtures of these interpretations where some people may be interpreting it more as parity of esteem, whereas other people might see it more as economic opportunities. But I think sometimes it's much better to ask yourself what is interests or even what is experience as interests. So I'm very much inspired. I'm not now talking about our research as sociolinguistics, but as philosopher of science or philosopher of language and a, a political philosopher is the issue of the sense of injustice. So Judith Sklar wrote an excellent book in which she says that I, I took it from her that we are so good in talking about what justice is like John Rawls, but we should ta start from the sense of injustice, N not talking about academic world, but more the political world or the bigger world. For a lot of countries, the experience of the habits people express in, in many countries a sense of injustice when others overwhelm their language or impose their language on them. That means it's a kind of usurpation. I talk, talking about the Irish and the Irish who had to get rid of their language and the, because of the colonization by the English. But the same in the Baltic states. And the Baltic states first had to speak Russian And now, after the switch in the Baltic states, they were happy to use their original language, the vernacular language, and now they are dealing with English at the university level. I think people have a sense of interest when it also when it comes to language, if there is a usurpation of the language going on. And the same is, is now an issue for other reasons in the Netherlands when it comes to the university. And very often, in uh, social linguistics even, uh, they use the word colonization uh, because there is a, colon a colonial heritage. Why? When it, when it comes to the language has to do with power, when it comes to the dominance of English worldwide. That is the legacy of uh, the colonial age. Before we go into the colonization argument, which I think everyone is quite interested uh, to hear more about, from what I just understand from what you're saying, so the, the different types of justice or, or injustice, what you're saying, what the problem is, a problem outside of the university, because I could also mention that many people who come to the university are quite aware of the fact that some have to invest more in order to be able to study in English than others, right? And this is not news to people who come to study in an English language program, right, as a student. Also, having studied here, this was something that I could uh, anticipate, right? And that's still maybe that's still a matter of injustice, but it's something that is anticipated, and we take it for granted because we know that's what we choose for. So I could imagine that these kind of injustices that happen within the university because of English language use, they are mitigated by expectation management, but by knowing, whereas the injustice that you were talking about is a much larger problem where the university is the kind of institution that imposes the language from the outside, as you just, Darren, as you just said. So the injustice that you're talking about is rather mm -hmm. felt outside of the university than inside the university. Yeah, also inside the university it's felt. Bob and I, we just finishing a special issue for a journal, a social linguistic journal, uh, and the deliberately have chosen to address the differences between stakeholders and their interests. So the different stakeholders have different interests and they are very often conflicting within the university, between the university and a larger context, and even then between nation states or within nation states, talking about Belgium, for instance, etc. And we should be aware of that. And the problem is that people working at the university are very often not aware about what it means for the larger society, because academics are, uh, uh, are living in a bubble. And we have now a transnational community of people who are living in a bubble, within that bubble of academia. And that means, and uh, who only speak English, who, are hot there, who don't speak the 
language in, in, of the country in which they live, etc., etc. And that triggers uh, a lot of feelings of injustice or a sense of injustice by some stakeholders. And you, we have to be aware that there are conflicting interests when it comes to di different stakeholders within the academic community, between the academic community and the outside academic community, so to say, and then also, also on a macro level when it comes to Belgium, for instance, the Flemish and the, the Wallonians. We had quite some upheaval about the kind of work that you two were doing also within the university, within our faculty, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And when I now hear you talking, I can see that people are triggered because you it feels like, is it fair to put that kind of responsibility on individuals working in the university to have to be aware of all of these surroundings, whereas we are in a setting where the lingua franca is English, where we have to communicate in an English community, where we maybe have to fear for, the, for our jobs, right? So... That when I'm now hearing this, I can understand that some of these points are very triggering from their perspective. I think this is true, but I think people should not neglect other aspects, as Rene's mentioned. If you look at why do most students come and study in English at this university or similar universities, it's often for individual, personal, career-based reasons, various motivational reasons that are for their own personal benefit, they're not terribly aware of the effects around the university or the effects of a university that employs a large number of international staff, has a dominant majority of non-Dutch speaking students, and the impact that has on life in the surrounding city. I became very much aware of this when... I lived here in Maastricht and my neighbours complained that they could not talk dialect nor Dutch in shops and cafes in Maastricht. And they say it's the influence of dominance of English. You can then go a little bit further and you, and you can ask why do so many people speak English anyhow? Why have they learnt it? Then you have to go back to the early or the late 1940s and the 1950s when governments introduced foreign language learning in schools and in most European countries fairly quickly English became the first foreign language. So you end up by the end of the 60s and the 70s with a large number of your young population whose first foreign language is English. Now, when we've looked at what languages do students in this university speak, we find they speak hundreds of languages, actually. But then you try and ask, at what level can they speak? At an academic level, they can use their first language, usually. Not always. Some even say they can't. And we looked at the level in this area of French and German. Is there a possibility for students to study here courses in French and German? And if you look at students whose French and German is their third language, it is not at a level to be able to follow courses in French and German. What I'm saying by this is you look back to political decision from a long time ago and you see the consequences 30 or 40 years later. If we jump to now, as René's been mentioning, you can see universities, not just here in the Netherlands, but across the world, are introducing more and more English. What is going to be the impact in 30 or 40 years' time on The relationship between the university, as René calls it, bubble, and the rest of the population, I can see dangers coming in the future. I could also imagine that now people would be quick to say, what's the impact if we hadn't done this for Limburg, for example? So what? that's like quick way to respond right? what do you rather want to know university your question is very suggestive because your suggestion is the same as done by the board of this university that the region profits a lot economically spoken from the englishization of the university of maastricht there are no figures about it that sustain that whole idea the next question is then why in the, the same region three other universities in Hasselt in Liège and in Aachen 
don't have such a level of Englishization. And another uh, interesting thing is if they want to have an impact on the region, then uh, why are they not seriously bilingual that you train even also the, uh, the students as well as the staff to speak both languages to contribute really to the region? Most of the students uh, that come to the University of Maastricht leave the university very quickly and they go back to their home country or to elsewhere in the Netherlands. And the most important thing, but by the way, to come back also to the linguistic justice or injustice issue, is we have to ask ourselves, why is this university that much on that level of Englishization? Why is in the Netherlands English so dominant in comparison to many other countries? The only reason is, and you should, and that is not, and all the administrators are not open about it, is the way how we finance higher education. It is very attractive in a neoliberal society in which we live to attract students from abroad via an EMI program, English Medium Instruction Program. And that's the basic reason. And all the other shit about the region or saying, it's good for the quality, we have better staff, better students. That's all at least not sustained with figures, with research. An issue, also a justice issue, it's not that much linguistic justice, but socioeconomic justice. Students, of course, they deliberately have chosen to do these EMI programs. However, there are a lot of students who don't make it to that. We exclude students who don't want to do that program or don't have the opportunity to do that program. And that is, there's also a financial barrier to, to get access to such program. And there may be a lot of students from abroad who would like to do this program, but who, whose parents cannot afford it to, to do an EMI program. But, sorry, Rene, I don't understand the last part of what you're saying. Because what's the difference between coming from abroad to do an EMI program and coming from abroad to do a Dutch language program. And if students want to study in Dutch, so if local students want to study in Dutch, which I think is a perfectly reasonable thing for them to want to do, are there not other opportunities to do that in the Netherlands? There are 14 universities in the Netherlands. There are many, I think it's only, what, about one-third of programs that are taught in English. So there are certainly opportunities to study in Dutch. Netherlands. No, it's not, oh, sorry, I'm, I was not clear. Sorry to interrupt you is know what I want to say if you're from a poor family or a rich family from abroad and, uh, or from a poor or rich I mean I don't know what, how it is in the Netherlands but I want to see research on that but my intuition is at least that if you have to pay very high fees from if you're from Bulgaria Romania to get access to the University of Marcy and you think that as parents that you can uh, cannot afford, then I'm pretty sure that most uh, students who made made it to the University of Marseille or uh, or any other university are from uh, middle class or upper class uh, families, and not to speak about students who want to come to the university if they are not European stu uh, students. So there are to have access to the university, that's one, and the second is whether you if you think it's good for your career, whether you have access to an EMI program or not. Wait a minute. So I'm still a little bit confused because I think you want to talk now about widening access to the university. Let's talk. Let's stick within the European Union. So leaving a question yeah, yeah. of students who have to pay international fees. But if we are really interested in widening access to university education, especially to the kinds of programs that are offered here at Maastricht University to a broader group of European students, then doesn't it make sense that we would do that? Or we would offer those programs in let's say, what is the lingua franca of science or in the most commonly spoken second language. It seems like you're interested in saying, so we hear often these sort of, let's say, comments about what's happening is the Bulgarian middle classes, the Romanian middle classes are coming to the Netherlands to get educated. And I think that's prob there's probably some truth to that, and not that's a bad thing anyway, right? And I, what I hear you saying is we should create a situation as well where we are attentive to the fact that we should be more inclusive in a class sense, so have a broader capacity to attract also, let's say, what we would tr traditionally call working class students or something like that from outside of the Netherlands, from the European Union, from across the European Union. But if we're going to say that, doesn't it make sense that we would do that in the language that is most common to all of these students? Also in the matter of the linguistic injustice we talked about yeah. before, the, in terms of equity, the kind of effort that students from Bulgaria, for example, would have to invest in order to learn Dutch at the same level as the Dutch native speakers were. And then when we're talking about language injustice, then it wouldn't make any sense to open the programs. Yeah. 
There are some interesting points to be made here. One of the things that quite a lot of research shows that the people who choose to do English medium programmes tend to come from the wealthier sections of society. They tend to have more opportunities in their childhood to do language, to take extracurricular courses than people who choose to study in their first language. There's quite a lot of evidence there. But there is recently quite a lot of evidence, or there is some evidence coming out, that this doesn't necessarily accrue better benefits to people. Studies in Scandinavia and recently one of our studies Mm. in Vietnam shows that the benefits that you have from having a wealthier background, having had a better education in a private school, for example, having had extra courses, doesn't carry over later in your studies. It works in the first few years, the first two years, say, but then that extra benefit that you've had in your teenage years doesn't carry over to your final year. The, the difference then between where you can make comparisons between people studying in their first language and their second languages crosses. So the, the average gain in content learning declines relatively compared to learning in the first language. Yeah. But if we follow this argument through, then we would just never study in any other language, right? And we, then you would say it's always more beneficial to just study in your mother tongue. Sure, that's probably true, if that's the only judgment you right. make. But there are other things you can take into account. Why did I go and study in France, for example, in French? because I wanted to learn about French culture, French way of life. I wanted to be more international from a sense there. And in fact, these extra benefits from studying in a second language would be foregone if you only studied all the time in your first language. However, that doesn't negate what René said at all. Being in a second language, English, then there could be some gains, uh, losses, from the fact that it's not in your first language. Gains are the sort of social-cultural gains from meeting other people, but losses could be the materials that you use may be slanted towards an Anglo-American literature that... For example, if you look at much of the literature that's suggested on many courses at this university, you find very little that's indicated in a language other than English. We're talking about academic literature now, or do you mean primary sources? Academic. In fact, you could be slanting your education to one way, which would come back to reinforcing the kind of hegemony of English. You've used the word benefits in I think like about five different senses in the last two minutes. So maybe it's helpful to clarify a little bit the different kinds of benefits. Because when we when we started out with this definition of linguistic injustice, in the first instance we talked about there was a sort of cost benefit situation, right? So there is right. a benefit to speaking a lingua franca or to speaking a common language to being able to cooperate. But there are also costs that are accrued in having to do that. So there are costs in having to learn the language, having to master the language. And of course, let's say that there is a kind of communicative cost as well in speaking a language that is not your mother tongue, especially when there are high stakes involved, right? Even including in scientific communication, because it's difficult to have the same level of nuance, etc. So on the one hand, we have that discussion of cost benefit. On the other hand, I think I can't remember. I think it was Rene who said that many students or are coming to study in uh, English language programs, either here in the Netherlands or elsewhere. Actually, I think it was you that said that, Bob, because of a perceived financial benefit or perceived individual benefit for their career development, et cetera, et cetera. So we have this kind of benefit. We have this sort of discussion of cost benefit in terms of learning a new language and speaking a language that's not your mother tongue. And then we have these other kind of benefits that you're talking about now, so these slightly more intangible ones, uh, the cultural benefit of learning about a new culture, adapting to another way of life, even if only temporarily. And then there is another kind of benefit also, it seems, that you're talking about, and that's the benefit that we associate with educational attainment. So am I getting all those different types of benefits that are at play in this discussion correct? 
Sure. Okay, sure. good. Yeah, but then, then the next question is, whose benefit? Uh, so it can be that for the one, uh, to, to make a very simple distinction between cultural and economic benefits, then the benefit of the one is not a benefit for the other. And there are conflicting interests and because we have different stakeholders. And uh, so for if we're talking about academics who are talking English, they have other benefits maybe of this Englishization than those who don't speak English within the academia and not to speak about the others. Then to come back to the different kinds of benefits, to talk only about two ones, is the economic benefit and the cultural benefit. It's not beneficial for Dutch culture if everything is dominate, if English is the dominating language, because a, a culture can only be reproduced and developed if there, at least also on an academic level, the language is cultivated, L1, the Dutch language. And so that's a cultural aspect. Economically, I said it already, and we have to talk about that. Uh, we have a neoliberal university where it's very attractive to t attract all these people from abroad. There's a perverse incentive to attract all these international students. What is the point of a university in our current yeah, socioeconomic context? And is a university primarily an institution that is a kind of engine of knowledge production, which can then be translated into various forms of benefit, to use our, our term benefit, and primarily economic benefit. And of course, that economic benefit is not distributed, let's say, equitably, right? So economic benefit that is generated through the production of knowledge tends to benefit most the elite class, we might say. Or does a university have a broader, let's say, sociocultural function as well? And that's much more difficult, I think, to define, also because of the exact reason that you just gave. Universities are, by definition, elite, right? And so they are catering, they're educating, historically at least, a sort of middle and upper class tranche of the of society, young people. But it, I, I think this question about language and about language policy also brings us very quickly into this question, right? What is a university actually for? And if it is indeed the case that what the university should be for is to generate as much knowledge as possible, to translate that knowledge into, into economic benefit, to translate it into and because that economic benefit then translates into some kind of you know, social benefit, that's the argument. If the point of the university is to generate as many top-level publications as possible, to generate as many successful research grants as possible, then I think it makes sense that the majority of work or the vast or even all the major work in a university should be done in what is, without question, the lingua franca of science, which at the moment is English. It was previously other languages, and at the, in the current period that we're living through, it's English. I, I think that probably, I'll put words into your mouths for a moment, you can tell me whether I'm wrong, you're going to argue, actually, there's been a transition in the role of the university in the 20th century, especially in the late 20th century, and the role of the university has changed. So it's neither simply to train the elite of a society. It's not even anymore to simply to be the training ground for the managerial class of a society, which is the transition that happened, let's say, sometime in the 19th century with industrialization. And nor is it just this sort of engine of science, right? The university is something beyond that, has a greater cultural significance and has a link then to a cultural sphere. And in a way, the discussion that we're having is what is that cultural sphere that it has a link to? Is it a national sphere? Is it a linguistic sphere? Or do we think on broader terms than that now? And for in our case, is it a regional sphere? I think there's an issue coming in here that universities have got big and very often they're situated in cities or regions that they suddenly find the university may be the biggest employer of or the biggest organization in the local region. That has a huge impact. If you then continue with a kind of role to train students and staff in the top level education and research that you've just mentioned, then you're creating a gap between, let's say, the 50% of society who don't go to university, who don't perceive the benefits, maybe they get a job that's not so well paid, for example, but there's a big gap. And they find that if they want to work with the university, then they have to give up their language and use the language that the universities use. To come back, where I, I was very glad that you raised the more fundamental questions about university. 
and uh, to, to come and uh, you can link that also to what you said before uh, Darian about the benefits let's say it in very simple words the economic benefits and the cultural benefits why do we have universities current policy the dominant policy is became more um, or is the result of transformation in the Netherlands of and not only in the Netherlands is that the economic benefits became more and more important than the cultural benefits of universities. That means the basic question is, since at least 15 years in the Netherlands, very neoliberal, what is the contribution of the uh, university to the GDP of the Netherlands and other countries the same? Uh, and that is at the expense of the cultural benefits. But I think universities should have a cultural benefit, should contribute to to the culture. And here also language plays an important role. The culture, and, and, and let's focus on my own faculty, arts and culture. We had a tradition at our faculty of researchers who did research on Dutch society. And we had also a tradition where we trained students to go in the Dutch archives. Therefore, you need to speak and write and read Dutch. But that means that some of my, of my colleagues for years wrote biographies about Dutch authors, did research on Dutch cultural history, etc. If you are at the, in the arts and culture faculty, nobody is doing that research seriously anymore, where we don't train students because it's complete in, in English, to learn to go into Dutch archives, etc. Then you lose something. And then you sustain, and to use the word elite, because we should use the word elite, especially since last week we had elections here. People who vote now for the right-wing parties, they talk about us as elite. And they do, do it in a very pejorative way. So you can do it in a very neutral way. Yes, we are an elite in a very neutral sociological way. But it, the word elite has got a, a negative connotation. And there is a lot of resentment among those, most often on the countryside, towards people like us. And we have to understand that. We have to understand why there is such a resentment with regard also to this elitist culture that we embody. In order also to bridge the gap that there is between us and them, has to put it simple, between the people who voted last week for an extremist right-wing uh, political party. And they, of course, are not willing to support, also financially, by the way, there's also financial aid, all these students from abroad, this highly Englishized university. We have to understand that and why there is this resentment. And that is also has a lot to do with, with language. But to come back, I think you are completely right. We have to uh, relate, make a distinction between different interests, and, and we have to raise the basic question, where, why do we need universities? And universities not only, not only have an econ uh, ben economic benefits and should also maybe contribute to that. We have to uh, create, or at least we have to produce people who would benefit the Dutch economy and the economy abroad, eh, also in other countries. But we should, we also have a uh, cultural function and a cultural benefit. And we, and that, and then the next question you also already raised, Darian, is the relationship between both. But I think the one goes at the expense of the other. I want to just get one point in. You raised the issue of resentment and resentment against uh, a perceived elite of which yeah, academics are generally perceived as part of that elite, both on the economic mm -hmm. and on the, on the cultural side. And you gave that as one of the reasons for the results, so the, for the great success of a far right-wing party in last week's elections in the Netherlands. But I think we need to be a little bit careful at not attributing too much coherence either to the agenda and also to the resentment of the voters or the far-right parties themselves. Because on the one hand, you have this resentment of a supposed economic and cultural elite. But on the policy side, you often have a policies that are not in any way geared towards addressing that gap between an elite and a, let's say, larger tranche of society that feels left behind, but are in fact about cutting regulations, about making environmental conditions worse, about making things actually easier for international corporations to operate within tax-free zones, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think we should be a little bit careful at not yeah. just saying, oh yes, this is a completely coherent argument that is coming from the far right. And we, we should be attentive 
to the resentment. We should be attentive to the points that are being used. But I think we should be a little bit careful. Agree, agree, yeah. Yeah, agree. I think one of the interesting points recently, to my knowledge, this is the first time in an election that things like internationalization and Englishization have actually played a major role in policies and discussion. I think previously this hasn't been the case. It may have been there in policy documents, but it's only jumped to the fore because of the debate of the last few years. I would also like... Can I still add something to that? Because I'm a bit... I'm also, I'm, I also think we should be a bit weary of these kind of argumentation. I have the feeling that de-Englishization is now offered in these kind of debates as this wundermittel that will solve all the issues of accessibility of the universities. I think not addressing actually the deeper rooted concerns that we've been, that we've been talking about, why universities have historically not been accessible to certain groups in society, right? So is taking the English away suddenly the solution in order to make a university more accessible? There seems to be something very knee-jerk about the reaction. Yeah. And I think we we need to be careful when we differentiate again between sort of the political discussion that is ongoing and a, and a longer, let's say, more in-depth or more robust, often more academic discussion about these topics. Because yeah. exactly, there seems to be this sentiment, okay, let's get rid of all the English programs, then we don't have to educate the Bulgarian Romanian middle classes yeah. anymore, and then there will be a and new And then era. suddenly the, fir the first generation students from Limburg will all flourish at the university. It's a bit of a false promise, I think. Exactly. I, I would m most certainly agree. I don't think a sudden change is going to help. It, it's actually, I feel it's sometimes a bit of a myth that the way Englishization, which does exist, is put forward and discussed is a sort of cloak for hiding other much more fundamental problems in society which haven't been addressed. And the housing issue is one that hasn't been addressed mm. for decades. And But I'd like to come back to the issue of benefits, when of economic benefits and cultural benefits. I think they are intertwined. I agree, theoretically, you should be able to disentangle them to see what has what kind of effect. But I think as an individual, you actually experience both economic benefits and cultural benefits and economic losses and cultural losses in one and the same person. And I think we mix up our identities very often depending who we're talking to and depending how our minds switch. I could go on a long time, but I won't. In some of the publications or some of the conversations about this topic, you also repeatedly said we're not against internationalization, right? That's yeah. because we have to disentangle those two also as if they are the same. At the same time, I'm then wondering how does internationalization, how could it look like in a just way that addresses these kind of benefits and losses, cultural benefits, economic benefits and losses that you were talking about? Now I'm talking really as an academic. We very often use concepts that are not fruitful. Even the word, let's f take the word internationalization, is really, is that an appropriate concept? If you take it literally, inter means between nations. If we talk about academia, we're not talking about something that is going on between two nation states. We're talking about, uh, for, for, to a large extent, we're talking about the creation of a transnational community. And in the academic world, we have, we and especially when it comes to expats, we created a community that is detached. I had to come back to the issue we discussed before, that is to a certain extent detached from the region right. and from anything else. Therefore, the argument also at this university is we contribute to the region. We should contribute as an academic, uh, if you want to figure out the truth about something, we should contribute to the whole world community, but at the same time in a localized way. So you should contribute your, maybe to the region or to the city, but at the same time you, you want to figure out the truth about one subject that is very often transnational and not international. And, this, and the most important point that Bob and I are making is that sometimes people think that internationalization and Englishization are the same. 
and then they are not the same. You can have internationalization without the use of English. You can internationalize with the use of Spanish or any other language, which was in the past very common. It's, and that's also what we should keep in mind. And the critique by Dutch intellectuals, basically, and many others, and also some associations, is not a critique on internationalization, but it's a critique on the verengelsing, Englishization. And if the discussion here in the, well, at least in the academic community, they like, and it is even in their interest to, to cover everything in terms of internationalization, not to address the concerns. I want to now make the point that actually English language education is a form of localization in this region, because I actually don't agree about my students. I have many students who go into the archives, in Dutch archives, and then write about it in English in order to be able to share the knowledge, the insights that they gain from Dutch primary sources with the rest of us, me and other students, and later they might publish about it. So isn't it actually a way, if you were only to write this in Dutch, you wouldn't share it with the larger international community, because let's be honest, there's not that many people out there who also speak Dutch. So isn't English language education in this context a form of globalization, which you actually manage to bring the local to the broader community? I would agree that there are individual instances where this is happening. I had an excellent example some years ago in the law faculty in international law where the lecturer gave his whole course in English but set individual tasks for groups of students which required them to access original documentation in languages of the courts. And it worked wonderfully. I thought it was a brilliant way of handling it. I want to go back to the point that Renee made a moment ago about, the, on the one hand, the difference between internationalization and transnationalization, and on the other hand, this sort of, let's say, transnational academic community that emerges. So on the first point, I think I, I agree with you completely, right? So what is, what it, and I don't think this is a new phenomenon, although it's, it, right, is that what emerges is a not an international situation of internationalization, but a, a transnational group, right? So that we, we are mobile as academics between countries when it's possible, right? So I feel comfortable working in pretty much any academic setting because more or less I would know how to navigate the institution. Of course, you have to learn some locale, local stuff and so on and so forth. We talk to our colleagues from around the world. Generally, we use the lingua franca to do that. That being English, of course, if you go to some other countries, it's more or less, right? So in France or in Germany, you're probably somewhat more likely to be in a context where people are speaking French or people are speaking German, but less and less, right? So we end up more and more in this transnational community where there is a scientific lingua franca that dominates. And I do think that has the kind, some of the drawbacks that Bob just mentioned as well. So we lose some of the linguistic plurality that certainly enriches culture, full stop, but also especially academic culture, and then especially academic culture in the humanities and the cultural sciences, right? There I'm with you. I, th I think where I start to get a little bit uncomfortable is this sort of, we move from that argument to this, these academics, this new transnational community are completely disconnected from the local region, from the communities that they are embedded in, from where they are living. And I just don't see that really. So that's purely anecdotal. I don't have any, I don't have any evidence for that. But everyone I know in Maastricht or every academic I know, actually, it's maybe less so if you're living in a huge metropolitan urban area, but every academic I know is involved in some way in their local community, right? They're involved in various activities, they're involved in schools, they're involved in, in many different ways, right? And so I'm a little bit, I, I'm just a little bit wary of creating this sort of stereotype of the foreign academic, only speaking English, only interacting with other expats, not engaging at all with the community, not being interested in what's happening in the local culture, because I just don't see it as being the case. And in the media and so in some of the things that have been published that we have seen also coming out of people writing from this university, there's this kind of bogeyman of the sort of, especially the Anglophone academic who doesn't care at all about what's going on around them, has no real interest in the local culture or the regional culture or even the national culture, who's really just doing their elite scientific activity, and that's it. So I, I do worry about the sort of slippage that occurs from what I think are ex very legitimate arguments or very legitimate discussions about the cultural role of the university and the cultural role of the academic. And really what I think is a very important discussion about, let's say, the public role of the university and the role of academics in public debate. And I think 
their language is an extremely important issue. And I think the inability of, let's say, academics like myself, for example, to contribute to public debate in the country where they work, is an, that is an extremely important issue. And I agree with that. But I think to go from there to creating this sort of stereotypical bogeyman of the transnational liquid academic who floats from here to there in conference to this or that without giving a shit about their local environment, I think that's a step that is really a kind of political tool that is used. That, that is questionable. That's also a question. It's questionable in the sense that you should do research on that. And the way to do research on that is network analysis. That you count how often you have contact, really, if you, you, the expats here in Maastricht really have an, uh, a contact with the people in the region. And then it's a question also of language, whether they speak with these people. And I think language is here a barrier. Uh, so you, you even mentioned fulfilling a, a public role as a public intellectual. You need to uh, speak Dutch and write Dutch in order to do that. And, uh, and as if you're an expert or belong to the transnational community, I think, I, I don't know, but I, 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 get, I, I think there's, there's, it's true that they are much more disconnected from the region or the, uh, the local community than the, the average women average Dutch, to talk about an average Dutch academic who speaks also English, etc., etc. I have some trouble. I just want to push back on you for one yeah. moment. You're right. So this is something that I think if we really yeah, we were interested... We should do yeah, research. We should do research and if we're yeah. answering it in a scientific way. But I think there is a kind of assumption here that is made, right, that the foreign academic, the foreign knowledge worker here in the region has less to do with the local community, the local region, than the Dutch one who lives somewhere else, for example, in the Netherlands, who lives in Utrecht or Amsterdam or Rotterdam or whatever, only comes in to do their job and then goes back. I think that's probably an unfair assumption. And the right? research argument works both ways. It's not as if we have the data on saying that the experts don't interact with, with the local communities, right? But yet, that's the kind of argument that prevails in the yeah, discourse. But I think you also the, you should disentangle economic and cultural benefits. But here there's also interesting economic side of the story, because we're not talking about the expats uh, working at the university, but we're also talking about the expat working in business, etc., etc. And there, there is some research done, as well, especially in Amsterdam, the people who are working at the site, us, or in the center, even there is this, this, the huge gap, at least felt by, the, uh, by a lot of people between them working at the site, us, or working in the center of Amsterdam and the others. Yeah, is, and this comes to be we should do research on that, but I think it's an issue that should be scrutinized. I mean, mm -hmm. and 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 it's also felt even uh, even if it's not truth, then then it sh we should say to those people who have such feelings that there is a huge gap between the transnational community of expats and the ordinary people, then huh? there is something going on in the to come back also to the elections, uh, but it is an issue, it is a serious issue, a felt issue. No problem to say this is a serious issue, no problem to say this is a felt issue. But I, now that I've got the microphone, <laughs> I would like to comment that the fact that there is very little hard scientific evidence to show this is probably irrelevant to the problem in the fact that the perceptions that people hold often govern their actions. So if they perceive that, oh, foreigners are all, then, oh, foreigners are, it becomes a fact. So it gets repeated and probably nobody actually does research into it. And that's, I think, a danger. And that's where the academy could come in and correct it. But when I look at the, because in the very beginning, Rene, you also said there is like this one and a half years ago, you felt more of a urge to also engage in a public discourse on this topic. And I have the feeling that this kind of public discourse, not just you, just in general, the discourse on initialization feeds into this kind of perception as foreigners of foreigners without it being based on more than a feeling of discomfort. Yeah. People have maybe wrong ideas or perceptions of our world, uh, the academic world, and that has, Bob is right, has performativity, but it's also the other way around. It's also the other way around. Or it don't, therefore, I was deli deliberately talking about the bubble. Uh, I think we have also weird uh, perception about the region, for instance, and other people, or even don't take notice of that. 
And I guess also that is an issue which needs to come back to this expat issue. Yeah, if you really traveling around, especially about the economic elite and the side us, do you really read the Dutch newspaper? Does it affect you what is going on, etc.? Uh, in the Netherlands, you, you're wealthy, you don't have, you can give a shit. And if the Dutch government says you have to isolate your building, you can afford it very easily. If they take all other measures, you can afford it easily. That is for a lot of people, the ordinary people, that they feel it in different ways. And we have to think about that. And also the consequence of, even if it are false perceptions, we have to take that into account. We have to do research on that. And I think here, to come back to uh, Darian's initial question about where why do we need university? Yeah, we need university to research to correct uh, issues. I want to go back. Sorry, I always want to go back. Yeah, I want to go back because in the very beginning, you said that class issues have become excluded from our public debate yeah. and from our political debate. And I agree with you. And then I think you proceeded to do precisely the thing that you were complaining about in the beginning, right? So you gave us the situation where you described a real sense of resentment, sense of unease between what we call, you called the ordinary people, it's, we can use that term, right? Vis-a-vis -vis some kind of economic elite. Right? You described it in terms of something that had in an instant, and I think it was a really good example, right? You gave the insulation example, right? So there are those people who can simply pay to have their houses insulated without worrying about it too much, and those who such a thing, if they are, if it's demanded of them, becomes a real financial burden, real financial concern. And this has absolutely to do with one of the most pressing issues of our day, which is the cost, how the costs and the benefits of yeah, mitigation or adaptation to climate change are being dealt with. This is an economic issue. Yeah. This is a socioeconomic issue, and it needs to be discussed as such in the, in the political way. But what happens is precisely that this gets transformed because it's easier to talk about it in terms of a cultural issue, right? The problem is not a class problem. The problem is not an economic problem. Oh, the problem has to do with these elite foreigners running around, not reading. They don't care about what's happening. They jet in, they jet out. They, in, uh, they, can, yeah, they go from conference to conference talking blah, blah, blah about concepts that have nothing to do with the ordinary people. So I, I really am concerned that instead of taking on what I think is an absolutely legitimate and important socioeconomic question, we simply transpose it into the cultural realm. Not to say that there are not cultural aspects of it, but to say that it's not a cultural problem. And it's not, it's really we are dealing with a, a, a crisis of the form of capitalism that we live with. And we are dealing with political efforts to, let's say, describe that crisis purely in cultural terms, whether it's about yeah, the foreign elite, the academics elite, and the language that, the, that they are teaching in and, and working, or whether it's about migrant laborers at the other end of the spectrum of the labor market, yeah. right? And that is, I, I think for me, that's a real concern. So when we talk, you, you said, yeah, when we talk about economic issues, we should be open and we should be honest. That's what indeed what we're talking about. And I think the same holds then when we talk about these sort of broader national political issues. You're right. It's a very complex issue. And therefore, first, we have to disentangle or differentiate economic, social economic issues, cultural or social cultural issues, etc. And, I know, and I, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of issues are phrased in cultural terms and that distracts us f of addressing other issues. To take, for instance, the elections that we had last week, the, the discussion initially was also about social security, it was about environmental issues, but at the end it turned out to become a discussion basically about migration, uh, about migration, and phrased in cultural terms uh, because it's a threat to our uh, collectively shared Dutch culture, if uh, many migrants come with basic, sometimes um, a Muslim background, that's the, the far-right-wing uh, argumentation. But nevertheless, this cultural issue should be taken into account. And so we, it's our responsibility to address, hey, you discuss only migration, but we, should, uh, we didn't discuss at all the climate catastrophe, we didn't discuss the class differences, etc. But we as academics, we should take into account all these issues. But we can also focus on one issue and then relate it to the other one, huh? for instance, class or climate, even the climate issue. But even this university, 
most of the discussions the last couple of years, 10 years, were about cultural issues and were phrased in terms of cultural identity issues. I think about all discussion about woke, feminism, etc. This social economic issue is not at all discussed. It's even in the academic world an uh, in, in issue. It's not only that the far guys are phrasing terms in cultural terms, but it's also a part of the academic world because we distract the attention from one socioeconomic issue, and I should add also the climate issue, by focusing only on the cultural issue. I'm aware of that, but nevertheless, I'm also concerned also to address the other things, because the socioeconomic, you can only address it if you train people to do research on that in, in, in Dutch. I speak Dutch and even dialect, therefore I can do research on poverty in Maastricht. You don't have access to the food bank if you speak English and don't, even if you speak, don't speak dialect. And the more you only train people, especially at the faculty where we are, faculty of arts and social sciences, where most of the people, at least the students, are not trained. You can say some of my students can go into the archive, but they cannot contribute to the culture because culture is also something that should be cultivated and if you think that the university not only has an economic task to contribute to the GDP but also to culture then you have to take into account also culture and to be very self-critical as a university about uh, the way we talk about culture and forget about the rest. So we talked about the elections as what Darren called the olifant uh, in the room. I think the other elephant in the room is the argument um, or the framing of the problem of international of, of Englishization that you've used in various publications, and that is a framing of that Englishization is a form of colonialism. And I think that didn't sit well with quite many people because of also ongoing colonial injustices in the world and seeing the Dutch or the Limburg situation in in the light of these kind of colonial injustices, I think is quite painful to some people. So can you maybe explain why you would use that kind of framing in order to make but, but, sense uh, of what is happening? I, I guess you don't refer to publications of Bob and me, but to two other colleagues uh, who use that. So you should we be very precise. We, we didn't have use You have it. used it also on our intranet. You have... Re we, you have yes, but I want to defend them. And colonies... I mean, it's... First of all, the word colonization is used as a metaphor, and as a metaphor it's used in two ways if you talk about language. First way is to say that, that English is so dominant, and then you can refer to Abraham Leswan and many other publications, it's the legacy of the colonial past. And then it's, it's not a metaphor, right? It's a, a metaphor, yeah, it's of course a metaphor. it's not a metaphor. Yeah. It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a me I mean, uh, yeah, what is a metaphor? Okay, let's talk about uh, what is a metaphor. That's a really interesting uh, subject. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really prefer to talk about metaphors. No, uh, but if you say it's a legacy of British or later American imperialism, yeah, but working. even uh, if, I, uh, if I use a metaphor, uh, for instance, the, the word to grasp is a metaphor. I understand that. Yeah, but it is a dead metaphor. And, and you revitalize maybe the uh, metaphor of colonialism if you say nowadays the Dutch language is colonized uh, by, uh, the, because of the Englishization. And I don't see why uh, that is a problem uh, to use it. Now to link it uh, to the second way to use it, that is uh, used by Jürgen Habermas, the famous German philosopher in theory of communicative action. He's talking about the colonization of the life world and he argues that the state, as well as the economy, colonizes, uh, can colonize the life world. One of the many, uh, many examples he gives is communication communication barriers. Here uh, you can sh use, could use the word colonization. That's not that we use the concept, but I, I, I want to defend my two colleagues who use the concept. I don't know how, whether they use it in this way, but I would say, yes, there's a colonization of the Dutch life world because of the Englishization, because uh, in the life world and the ordinary people, they experience that they are overwhelmed and they are annoyed uh, by uh, the dominance of English. I think, wait a minute, hold on, because I, I just have to call a little bit of bullshit, I think, on these some of these yeah. arguments, because I think so many things get mixed up, right? So on the one hand, I think, okay, we can talk metaphorically, and I think everyone understands what we mean when we talk about the imperialism of American culture at the moment, right? So with over, since since the end of the Second World War, we see increasing 
yeah, reach, spread of American cultural production into what you would call the life worlds of, into other life worlds, right? So into life worlds of European nation states, but the, ar around the world, right? But I think on the one hand, yes, I think that's indisputable. On the other hand, it gets soaked up, right? It's, let, let's not pretend that there is some sort of effort to resist the encroaches of American culture. And I'm not talking here necessarily about scientific culture because then I think it's even it's less a strong argument. I'm talking about American popular culture. It's being soaked up. It's being consumed. And I think, yes, of course, there is always some resistance. There is always some, there is always a counter narrative, a counter story. But to use this kind of metaphor of colonization in this instance, I find to be, I can see how we use it as a metaphor, but, but, but I, I, I don't see why you bother about that at all. <laughs> because if you say there is resistance, by the way, we also don't use very very deliberately not the word linguistic imperialism. And so also here imperialism is. Why? Because the word imperialism, and you could also, uh, if I would be you arguing against colonization, I would use the following argument that you can also mobilize against linguistic imperialism that assumes that there's one actor who very deliberately imposes on the other and assumes even that the other cannot resist it. Yes, they can resist, and very often it's unintentionally. It's not that someone in Hollywood say, let's uh, get rid of French culture in Europe and impose our pop songs on the French culture, not at all. But there's resistance, and people, if they resist, they use uh, a language, and one of the ways to, to resist is to use the word colonization because it has certain connotations, and I think it's it's correct. Some, if you give expression to that and resist to the Englishization by using the word colonization, and I've and it's uh, over political correctness of those people who uh, are annoyed by using that. What is the problem? I don't see the problem if colleagues use the word colonization, yeah, but and especially if you use it metaphorically and to resist the Englishization that annoys a lot of people and it has a lot to do with power, etc. We can use the term metaphorically if we want to, but I think we should be pretty careful when we compare what's happening in the Dutch context with the Dutch language or in Dutch academia to what has happened with the violent suppression of indigenous communities, indigenous languages in other parts of the world. Yeah. Right? This is We're talking here about policy that the Dutch have imposed upon themselves. We're talking about policies and let's say also a general set of cultural and socioeconomic practices which have arguably been economically very beneficial to the country, mm -hmm. right? We might say, yes, it has generated inequalities as well. Okay, we can make that argument. But I think it's a little bit, yeah, I, I agree with you that we shouldn't be overly sensitive and we shouldn't give in to too much political correctness, but we should also say, yeah, when we use metaphors, we're doing things with those metaphors, right? And we make sometimes direct comparisons they are those direct comparisons ha are performative in that they are supposed to be doing yeah. something politically right there are more dutch speakers now i think than there have ever been before in the world and that is largely due to migration into the netherlands and migrants learn dutch participate in dutch culture and transform dutch culture as well as transforming the dutch language and i, I so i think Sure, we can use the term colonization. I think everybody is, understands a little bit what it means to use the metaphor of, yes, the colonization of Anglo-American cultural colonization. But when we start to really make these direct comparisons, when we start to really say, yeah, the Dutch language is like these other languages that have been violently suppressed and violently stamped out, and that students were not allowed to learn even at the level of primary or secondary education, I think the argument yeah, devolves then, into a kind of there, farce. There's oversensitiveness, also purification of the concept of colonization, because if in sociology, which is very common, or philosophy, people talk about the colonization of the life, they're not thinking about a violent way how the state or the market colonizes the life world. And on the other hand, I think we have a purification of the concept of culture. Cultures change. Cultures interact. 
the yeah. influx of migrants, the influx of different types of people, yeah. the progressive changes within our culture in relation to gender, in relation to sexuality, except all of these things change the culture such that it is no longer what it was like before. Yeah. And this is part of the dynamism of culture. And of course, we can make efforts to regulate that. We can make efforts to intervene in that in ways that we yeah. think are important. But I think we should... But that what is then the problem? Because, we yes, we, we it, there's a pro proliferation of hybrids going on. And we should celebrate these hybrids. But we should be at the same time aware that those people who use the word colonization should be taken seriously because they don't say at all. Also, these two colleagues you're referring to who wrote about that in the NSA Homeless Blood, they are not saying, hey, they violently uh, imposed the English on us. No, they are addressing that as a concern of domain loss of Dutch. But with any good metaphor, it comes with, with associated commonplaces and with colonialism. These are a violent imposition. And these are also often taken away the, the agency of the one that is being colonized. And I think that is what you tried to say before. This kind of, the language is also being soaked up and there's agency in soaking it up. It's not as if we're here talking about a passive group that is that has this kind of English imposed on them. Yeah, but then you ask, very simple, you ask people, what do you exactly mean by that? Have an open discussion about that instead of saying, whoa, that's it. Thank you, Bob and René for being here today and for talking us through the arguments of why Englishization is a form of language injustice. I think we learned quite a lot about it. You're welcome. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you. As usual, any and all opinions or positions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts or the guests and absolutely not the official positions of Maastricht University. If you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, please write us a message at wokeasscience at maastrichtuniversity.nl and follow us on Instagram, wokeasscience, to listen to previous episodes and also, of course, get the latest news on our new episodes. You can listen to past episodes and future ones wherever you get your favorite podcast. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Ciao, ciao.